Well, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, I want to encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 24. We are continuing our series in the book of Genesis. Now, as you look down at Genesis chapter 24, you will notice that it is a very long chapter. At 67 verses, it is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It is a complete narrative unit, so we are going to unpack or try to unpack all of it this morning and cover it as a whole. And I'm actually going to read the entire chapter for you. Now, I think most preaching books would tell me or advise me not to do that. I mean, it's 67 verses long. Why burn a full seven minutes of your sermon by reading the passage? People's attention spans are getting shorter. The servant in the passage repeats himself. So there's lots of reasons that people give for not reading a passage like this in its entirety as part of a sermon. I think there's great value in simply reading God's word or having God's word read aloud. When Paul instructed his young protege, Timothy, he said this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And I want to do all three of those things this morning. I want to read the Scripture. I also want to exhort and to teach. But I'm going to begin with the public reading of Scripture. See, I always get a little bit nervous when someone begins their sermon by saying, I don't have time to read the passage to you because I've got so much good stuff to say. The day I start thinking that what I have to say is more interesting than what the Bible has to say is the day you should start looking for a new pastor. But having said that, let me read the passage. I'm going to read up to verse 61, and then I will finish reading it at the conclusion of the message. This is is God's word, and this is what it says. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I Then take your son back to the land from which you came. Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine only, you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, 
O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar and a, a upon her hand, and she gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar in the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms, wearing 10 gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat. Until I have said what I have to say, he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and as he has become great, he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, has borne a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from all the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. 
Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord And bless the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out the jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you too, or may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Kind of need a breath after that and maybe a drink of water. But uh, this passage is difficult to preach on or teach on, partly because of its length. There's no way for me to comment on all 67 verses. This passage is also difficult to teach on, partly because of the question of how we are supposed to understand and apply it. Now, the passage is somewhat familiar, or it might be familiar at least to some of you. Many people have seen this chapter as something of a marriage manual. So I could give you some helpful advice on how you should approach finding a spouse. Number one, make sure you marry a fellow believer, just like Abraham made sure that his son would marry someone from back home and not one of the Canaanite girls. Number two, make sure you meet their family. I mean, you can tell a lot about a person by meeting their family just as this servant did when he met Rebecca's family. Number three, make sure you pray about it. That's what the servant did. And Isaac ended up with a wife who was both physically attractive and had a great heart. So make your prayer specific for the kind of spouse you want, right? Number four, make sure you know the person's character. The servant employed a bit of a test. He said, you know, I'm going to ask for water. And the one who says, oh, let me water your camels also, that's going to be the one that Isaac ought to marry. So just follow those steps and you'll guarantee yourself a great spouse and a great marriage. Now, look, none of those things are untrue. 
In fact, I would say all of them have value when it comes to preparing for marriage. But while we can draw some principles like that from this passage, I'm not sure that's the point of the passage. I mean, if this is a guidebook for choosing a spouse, then why wouldn't we all opt for arranged marriages and marrying our spouse sight unseen? Right? Just entrust a family friend to go down to the local watering hole and select a spouse for you. How many of you have done that? Abraham was also insistent that this wife that was to be found for Isaac was going to come from his own family. Any of you think you should have married one of your cousins? Probably not. See, that's the danger with this kind of approach. Now, that doesn't mean the passage doesn't have anything practical to teach us. And I want to walk through it by focusing on what it teaches us about promises, prayer, providence, and provision. So let's look firstly at what we learn about God's promises. Now our series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and we have stopped at a number of places along the way to just take note of the way that God fulfilled his promises, that God is both a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And we could do that again here. God's original call to Abraham sounded like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And this chapter shows us how God has been fulfilling all of his promises to Abraham. And the passage starts out by telling us that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. That was a partial fulfillment of that promise. I will bless you. So God keeps his promises. But that's not the thing I want to say about promises. I'm actually struck by two things related to God's promises in this chapter. The first is that from the outside, it often seems like God's promises are in jeopardy. Now, we've been tracking this story for a long time already. We began this series way back in January, in Genesis chapter 12. And we aren't given a definitive time stamp here. We're just told that Abraham was old and well advanced in years. But in reality, we've been tracking his story for almost a hundred years at this point. And that whole time, it has appeared as though God's promises to him were in jeopardy. Abraham was promised that he would be made into a great nation. But for so much of the story, he had no descendants, he had no land. And even as we fast forward almost a hundred years, the only land he has is a burial plot. The only descendant he has is an unmarried son. The idea that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky would have been laughable to any objective observer. Now, we have the advantage of hindsight. I mean, we know the rest of the story. But at the time, you would have been hard-pressed to find anyone willing to take the bet that God's promises would be fulfilled. And isn't this often the case? 
I mean, doesn't it often seem unlikely that the promises we read about in the Bible will come to pass? Doesn't it sometimes feel like the gates of hell are prevailing against the church? Doesn't the promise of Jesus' return sometimes just feel like a pipe dream? And the New Testament speaks to that very thing. When Peter says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise? Or where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You've heard that. Maybe you've thought that. I mean, you look at the chaos currently enveloping our world and think the lion laying down with the lamb, is that ever going to happen? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I mean, does that seem, does that even seem like a possibility right now? I just want to point out that God's promises often look like they are hanging by the slenderest of threats. But if we've learned anything from the story of Abraham, hopefully we've learned that God seems to take great delight in fulfilling his promises in spite of how things appear. Second thing that strikes me about God's promises here is that possessing God's promises shouldn't make us passive or complacent. Abraham doesn't sit back and say, well, God promised to make my descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I guess I don't need to do anything. Abraham is old and well advanced in years. He looks at Isaac and thinks, that boy needs to get married. And he knows that if Isaac is going to keep the family line going, he needs to get married. And if he's going to get married, he needs to find a wife. And if he's going to find a wife, someone has to do something. See, I think we often misunderstand what it means to take responsibility for those things that we want to come to see or we want to see come to pass. I remember working with one couple in the course of their Uh, marriage preparation. And this guy had accumulated some significant debt, most of it consumer and credit card debt. And this was a concern to his fiancée. She had voiced that concern in, in our sessions together. And I had asked the question, well, what is the plan to get out of debt? And his response was, well, I'm not worried about it. God will provide. See, I think he thought that sounded really spiritual. I thought it sounded really stupid. God will provide is not a magic formula that we just kind of wave out there and say, you know, I don't need to work hard. I don't need to do anything. You're not getting out of debt without working hard and curtailing your spending. Possessing God's promises shouldn't make us passive or complacent. Now, there's a balance to be struck here. Some Christians need encouragement to think before they act, but many others need encouragement to act after they think. 
And some Christians are paralyzed by always trying to figure out or discern what God's will might be for their life. Now, we've seen Abraham get into trouble by taking matters into his own hands in the past. I mean, his attempt to shortcut God's promise, produce offspring through Hagar, proved to be disastrous. So how is this different? How is Abraham taking action to ensure that there will be descendants in his line different from what he has done in the past? Well, I would say that it's different because Abraham is moving forward within the bounds of God's revealed will. So he knows Isaac needs to get married, but he's quite careful in the execution of it. Listen to the oath that he makes the servant swear in verses 3 and 4. He says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So as much as he knows that Isaac's non-marriage is going to be problematic to the fulfillment of God's promises... He's clear-headed about the fact that Isaac marrying a Canaanite girl would prove to be just as disastrous. The law would later go on to say this about the Canaanites. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So having spent some time already in Canaan, This is what Abraham was concerned about. He's not of the, you know, any marriage will do camp. The New Testament gives us similar counsel when it speaks to widows. And Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So marriage ought to be in the Lord. Abraham is also firm on the fact that he doesn't want Isaac going back with the servant. The servant raises the the possibility, the problem, that maybe when he finds this girl, she's not going to want to make this uh, this trip with him. And maybe his chance of success would be better if, if Isaac actually made the journey with him. But Abraham's not even open to negotiating on that point. And his reasoning is given to us in verses 6 and 7. Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me, swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. See, look, it's taken Abraham this long to finally begin to settle in the land of Canaan and he doesn't want to give up the gains that he has made. He doesn't want Isaac returning home. He knows this is where God has called him. So Abraham takes action, but he does so in a way that conforms to God's revealed will. And that's how we ought to live as well. Possessing the promises of God should not make us passive or complacent. Instead, we step out in faith. Well, there's a second theme we see throughout this passage, and that is the theme of providence and prayer, or prayer and providence. And I lumped these two together because they are interconnected. The servant in this story is a fascinating figure. He's actually the star of the show. He has more lines than anyone else. We don't even know his name. 
says that he was the oldest of Abraham's servants. So it's possible that this is Eliezer from back in Genesis 15. But we don't know for sure. What we do know is that this servant was a godly man who possessed the right combination of pushiness and trust. He seems to have a pretty good handle on both prayer and providence. So he travels from the land of Canaan back to Abraham's homeland. He arrives at a well of water just outside the city. He has the camels kneel. Then we read this in verses 12 to 14. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The servant's strategy seems to be mixing together circumstances and prayer. I wouldn't call what he's doing laying out a fleece, but he is looking for God's leading in the moment. Now, there's a danger in making all of your decisions in life by looking for some sort of tangible sign. There are a lot of times when you just need to do the next right thing. You just need to follow God's will as it's already been revealed to us in Scripture. But there is a place for doing what this servant did and just committing all of our ways to the Lord and then paying attention to our circumstances as part of His leading. I know I've told some of you this before, but the combination of prayer and providence is part of the story of our church. Back in our pre-launch phase, we had no idea where we were going to meet as a church. Some of you were along for the ride with us during that stage, and people would say, well, where is the church going to be planted? And the best answer we could give is, Surrey? Somewhere? And we had looked at all sorts of different venues, but had been told no by all of them. We had taken a look at the Clova at one point, but then ruled it out because there was nowhere to do any kind of kids ministry. But you know, when you get to within three or four months, so we planted this church or we launched in September of 2011, but up till May, we still didn't know. And when you get to within three or four months of launching or planting a church, it it makes you pray. And I remember during one of those kind of down and dark days, just driving down this street, down 176, and just feeling compelled that I ought to go into the school across the street. At that time, it was the Cloverdale Learning Center. It was run by the the Surrey School District. And I had already been told that I was not to email or phone any of the schools directly or contact the, the principals directly by phone or by email. But walking in the front door is different, right? So I remember I prayed in my car out on 176th Street. And then I walked into the doors of that school. I said, I'd like to see the principal. Now, I had lots of experience talking to principals because of my high school years. But usually they said, we'd like to see you. But in this case, when I talked to the principal, I shared, this is what we are wanting to do. Would you guys be open to renting us your space on Sunday mornings for us to do kids ministry over here? 
She said, oh, I think that would be a great idea. I mean, she basically said, let me draw water for your camels as well. What can we do to help? That was a mix of prayer and providence. This church exists where it exists today because of prayer and providence. And what I think we should be struck by in this story is what we might call the simple providence of God. And what I mean by that is that this story, this chapter, is not filled with miraculous occurrences. There's no angelic vision. There's no dramatic voice from heaven. As a matter of fact, God does not speak directly in this chapter at all. But even though God doesn't speak directly, it's clear that he's orchestrating all of this. It is a match made in heaven. I mean, Rebecca just happens to come to the well that evening and say the very thing the servant prayed for. She also just happens to be from the family of Nahor, Abram's, Abraham's brother. That's providence. Now, often we can only see it looking backwards, but God's providence is in operation the whole time. It's always at work. And I do want to highlight one other thing about prayer, which is that praise is an essential part of it. So I guess in keeping with my brilliant alliteration this morning, I could have put this under the umbrella of prayer, providence, and praise. So the servant offers his prayer in verse 12. Basically, oh Lord, please grant me success. And then after Rebecca invites the servant back to meet her family, we read this in verses 26 and 27. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And when the servant then later relates his story to Laban and Bethuel, he includes a note of praise for God's providence. Here's how he says it in verse 48. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. And then again in verse 52, he says, it says, When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. God led me by the right way. That's prayer and providence. It's that mix together. And I point this out because I think there's a tendency within us to sometimes pray with great fervency when we are in need. But then we forget to praise God for his answers to our prayers. The servant could have chalked everything up to coincidence. He could have thought, well, it's great that worked out, but now we've got to make the long journey back. So let's just get on to the next thing. Those of you who serve or volunteer with us here at Crossridge will have hopefully received an invitation to our drive-by, remember, and celebrate event. This is something we do every year, partly as a way to say thank you to our volunteers, but actually more than that, we do it as a way to remember and to celebrate what God has done among us, to give Him praise. So it's a thank you to you, but more than that, it's a thank you to God who has seen fit to allow us to do what we do. This is so important. 
You might remember the story from Jesus' ministry where he heals ten lepers, but only one returns to thank him. Luke records the incident like this. He says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? That's a microcosm of our world, isn't it? So let's be those who pray for God's providential leading and then praise Him for His answers. So in keeping with our alliteration, the third thing we learn about in this passage is provision. We've already learned something about the way God provides in this series. In chapter 21, God provided the Son that Abraham and Sarah had longed for. In chapter 22, God provided a ram for the sacrifice instead of Isaac. That's where the name Jehovah-Jireh or Yahweh-Jireh, the Lord provides, comes from. Chapter 22 is about God's provision on the macro level. God himself will provide the lamb, is what Abraham said. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of that in Jesus, that God has provided the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But this chapter helps us understand something of God's provision on the micro level. Let me read you the end of the chapter, verses 62 to 67, since I didn't read them earlier. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev, And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The most basic level, we can say that God provided a wife for Isaac. And this is a good thing. We believe that marriage is a gift from God. I think in my prayer for Jake and Emily last week, I said marriage can be a blessing. Actually, I know I said it like that because a number of you have pointed out that I did. Now look, I would stand by that, but I I will say I do think that marriage is one of God's great provisions for us. The book of Proverbs says it this way, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Isaac could have given testimony to that. Now, the tension that has been running all through the Abraham story has been related to descendants, and the provision of a wife for Isaac would allow that to continue. Children are one of the blessings of marriage. But there's a more specific thing mentioned here that speaks to the way God provided for Isaac. Listen to verse 67 again. Then Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted 
after his mother's death. We ought to be struck by the simple humanity of that. When God provided a wife for Isaac, he wasn't just providing a receptacle for his children. Through Isaac's marriage to Rebekah, God was providing a means of companionship and comfort. Now, marriage is God's provision on a number of levels, but it is certainly his provision in our times of grief. Many of you know that my mom passed away last year. but My dad died 17 years ago now. And his death came far more suddenly and unexpectedly. And I was a much younger man then. We just had the first two of our kids. They were three and one. It's a difficult time. And Ilona was such a source of comfort to me during that season. That was God's provision. It was what helped me through that stage. It's part of God's gift of marriage, that type of provision. But what I really want you to see here is not just a point about marriage, but a reminder that God cares about your grief. When you experience heartache or loss, God is not indifferent to it. There's a really touching scene near the end of John's gospel where Jesus is on the cross. And the passage reads like this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That's amazing. Jesus cares about that. Jesus is being crucified. He looks down and he sees his mom and one of his disciples. Their hearts are broken. She is losing the son. She cradled in her arms. He is losing the one that he had followed and given his life to for the past three years. And into that grief, Jesus says, I want you to be a son to her. I want you to be a mother to him. See, God cares about your grief. He not only cares, but he has provided relationships as a means to help heal the hurts that we experience. This is what he did for Isaac. And even for us, as we emerge from a time of social isolation, Let me just encourage you to deepen your relationships. One of the dominant metaphors in the New Testament for the church is that the church is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are meant to care for the burdens of one another and to share life together. This is God's provision for us. So let's be the church. Let's be a family. Let's be the family of God together. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for this great opportunity we have had to listen to your word read aloud and then to reflect on its significance for our lives. We thank you for your providential leading. We thank you for your promises that will one day become a reality. And we thank you for your provision, your provision first and foremost for our Savior who has redeemed us but also, Lord, for your church and for your people who are a source of comfort to us. 
God, we pray, we acknowledge all of this is from you and that our lives would overflow with praise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.